Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Thank you, Father David, for being with us. Thank you, Father Hezekiah. It's good to be back in this second of two talks in which we are reflecting upon the liturgical cycles of the church's prayer, not simply as ideas, not simply as ideas, but experiences. The trouble with our times in regard to the things of the church and in regard to almost everything else is that we have become so overly pseudo-intellectualized, and I, I emphasize the pseudo there, that everything gets reduced to ideas. There's nothing wrong about having ideas as long as one doesn't have too many of them. And as long as they don't get in the way of experiences and relationships. Because if we replace experiences and relationships with ideas, we are going to implode into the prison of the self. And that is exactly what the Lord came to set us free from. And those are the two choices, dearly beloved. We have the church, and let us always remember, always remember, using the words of the great Saint Irenaeus of Lyon in the third century, that the church is the sacrament of Christ, and Christ is the sacrament of the Father. Long before the church started, started counting sacraments as liturgical acts, this first expression of a sacrament, and remember that it is sacramentum in Latin, mysterion in Greek. Neither of these words started as religious words. They were taken by the church, either the Greek-speaking part of the church or the Latin speaking part of the church, mysterium for the Greeks, sac sacramentum for the Latins. They were taken by the church as useful vehicles, not to simply express an idea, but to convey a reality. That Christ, the only begotten Son of God made flesh, has made the Father known to us. Gospel of John. No one has seen God, the only begotten one in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. And then St. Irenaeus tells us that just as 
the only begotten son makes the father known. So how do we know the son? We know the son not by ideas, not alone, but we know the son in the communion of the church. So I, I have a quote. I have a number of quotes for you this evening. And the first one is from a relatively recent writer, liturgical theologian. David Fagerberg is his name. And he writes this. Liturgy, this is from his book, by the way, Consecrating the World. Consecrating the World. David Fagerberg. Liturgy is participation in the perichoresis of the Trinity. Now, if that word perichoresis is a new word for you, it's a very, very beautiful word. Peri in Greek, the prefix peri means around. And choresis comes from the Greek word, verb karevo, which means to dance. To dance. Imagine a theological term that comes from the word to dance. How different this is from the, the, the notion that theology consists of ideas and formulae. The liturgy of the church gives us the experience of dancing around with the Holy Trinity. Dancing. In and out, around and within as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in this eternal dance of perfect love and communion. And because of this dance, we exist. The divine dancers, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brought us from non-existence into being to share this eternal dance. So, liturgy is participation in the perichoresis of the Trinity, asceticism, asceticism. Labor and struggle. Remember that asceticism in Greek is exactly the same word as athletics in English. Asceticism is the capacity for that participation. So we have ascetic labor so that we may have the capacity to dance with the Trinity. Theology. Theology is union with God. Not, again, a series of ideas. I'm not, when I say this, I'm not trying to vilify ideas. I repeat myself. Um, we have an intellect, and that intellect formulates ideas. The trouble is when we make those ideas an end in themselves. Ideas as good and humble servants of experiences, that's fine. Ideas alone, not fine. So, Going on to, to uh, David Fagerberg, the church's liturgy is an act of theology, not in terms of ideas, but an experience of union with God. Liturgical asceticism, liturgical asceticism is the lifelong process of deification that results in the removal of the cataracts of sin from our eyes giving us clear sight at last. Just as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had to have their eyes opened, their eyes were held, says the gospel, 
and they could not see him. Even though he was there with them, they could not see who he is until their eyes were opened and they knew him. And at the moment that they knew him, remember that the biblical expression to know means to have experience with, have relationship with. It does not mean primarily to have information about. The pseudo-intellectualism of our time thinks that because we in the 20th, 21st century, I almost said 20th because I don't think I've quite made it to the 21st yet myself. We in the 21st century think that because we have greater access to more information than people did before us with our great storehouses of it, that therefore we know more. Oh, 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 what a delusion. Knowledge is relationship. Adam knew Eve, his wife. And that image of the marital union is there on purpose because it is intimacy. Now, of course, there's one sort of intimacy between the, between the husband and wife, but all of these expressions of intimacy are meant to reflect the intimacy of the divine persons that the divine persons wish us to share. And they have given us the sacramental life. And the sacramental life, again, is not a series of formulas. Sacramental life is the experience of the presence of God in everything, in everything, in time, in the material world, in all the aspects of our personhood, not just our soul, but our body and our mind and our soul, yes. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the song, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. All things are filled with the glory of God. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, says the prophet, like the waters fill the sea. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge, not the information about, but the knowledge of the glory of God. That's why it's so unfortunate when the liturgy, which is meant to be this stream of living water. Again, I, uh, this is, I, on the last Tuesday evening, we were beginning this middle week of the Paschal season in the Byzantine tradition, which we call <coughs> the week of mid-Pentecost, the middle time between Pascha, Easter, and Pentecost. And we sing such things as, Fill my thirsting soul, O Lord, with the waters of, of godliness, of piety. For you cried out to all, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Of course, this is a quotation of the, from the Gospel of John. When the Lord said to the Samaritan woman that the water that he would give would become in the one who received it, a fountain of water springing up into life eternal. And then later in the gospel, in the seventh chapter, he says, from the insides, literally the guts, from the insides of one who believes in me, says the Lord Jesus Christ, rivers of living water, the spirit of God shall flow. So that means that one who is 
a fellow dancer by grace with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not only a receiver, but a source, a source of living water, a source. Rivers of living water shall flow from the heart of him who believes in me. Now, all of these expressions are meant to convey the reality that the liturgy is there in the church to make that present. And so, therefore, the process of making that present results in us becoming part of something much more large than our little lives. That's what it means for the Lord to gather the scattered ones. All liturgical services begin with the gathering of the faithful, the coming together of the faithful, the coming together for what? To be just another human association, merely human association? No. To be transformed, as I said last week, to be transformed into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, to be made into something that we could never be made into on our own. So it is the response to an invitation to become the gathered ones and to put an end to our continuous scattering. For the most part, our life in the world has a good deal of scatteredness about it. Don't we experience it every day? And so that scatteredness does not overpower us and imprison us in a life of continual implosion. We are given the sacrament of the church who gives us the sacrament of Christ, who brings us to the origin of everyone and everything, the Father. Now, that's why the church's prayer, because, of course, we are speaking of the church's cycles of prayer. That's why the church's prayer can't be reduced to simply the fulfilling of individual religious needs. Romano Guardini, I know I've quoted him before, uh, he wrote many wonderful works, uh, the, the best of which, uh, and I've, I know I've referred to it and perhaps even read from it on various occasions in these talks. His book, The Lord, is his greatest work. And if you've never read Romano Guardini's The Lord, make a resolution that you will, no matter how long it takes you to read. It's a big book, but it's not unduly difficult. It's not meant to be read. It's not, it's not, not meant to be sped read. Uh, the, the book actually consists of, there's hundreds of small chapters, all reflections on the New Testament from the Gospels through the Apocalypse that Romano Guardini gave in the earlier part of the 20th century to university students in Germany. Romano Guardini, even though it's an Italian name, is actually a German. And he was one of uh, these great theologians in the early part of the 20th century who called the church back to the sources. Ressourcement in, in uh, French is the name given to this theological approach. And by the sources, what he meant is very specific. He meant the scriptures, the liturgical texts and actions of the church, and the fathers of the church. Because he was worried 
that theology had been for a long time disintegrating simply into a long, long collection of ideas and was no longer conveying an experience, a relational knowledge. And so he was convinced that the only way for this to happen was for people once again to experience the life of the church in the liturgy. He wrote, uh, in addition to writing The Lord, he wrote a one of his earliest books, I think it was about the time of the First World War, called Sacred Signs. Sacred Signs. And it's all about the various external things, everything from the sign of the cross to bread and wine to doors to intervals of time, all of this conveying the sacramental experience of the world as as everything in creation intended by God to be a vehicle of his presence. And he wrote, I have, I don't even have the book itself. I have a copy of the book because it's one of the one of the older ones. He wrote this, and by the way, he was an important figure, Romano Guardini, not only as a great uh, patristics and liturgical scholar, but he was very, very central in the formation of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, for example. Pope Benedict wrote the introduction to the, the newest edition of the uh, his book, The Lord, and also uh, even more, uh, obviously, Romano Guardini wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, and then Pope Benedict wrote another one called by the same title. I think I mentioned this maybe last week. And that's all on purpose, to show that they are they are twin books, brother books, one for, one for one time early in the 20th century, and one at the very beginning of the 21st. So in Sacred Signs, this is what Romano Guardini writes. This little book was written to help open up the world of the liturgy. That world will never be made accessible by accounts of how the certain rites and prayers came into existence and under what influences or by explanations of the ideas underlying liturgical practices. It's not a book about ideas. It's not about how we came to do this or that in the past. As useful as that can be, but it's not what it's about. Those ideas may be true and profound, but they are not apparent in the liturgy. In other words, when you ask questions about why do we do this or that during the church services, the church services themselves don't answer that question because the church services themselves are a product of that historical development. They don't give an explanation of it. The liturgy is not a matter of ideas, says Guardini, but of actual things actual things, and of actual things as they now are, not as they were in the past. So the liturgy is not meant to be a trip to the past. It is not an imagining or pretending of past events. Even when we say in the liturgy that we remember everything that was done for us and for our salvation. We don't mean it in the sense of calling to mind something that was long ago and isn't around anymore. When we say we remember, we are saying it 
in the same sense, in the same sense, those of you who are familiar with the ways of the, of the Byzantine tradition know that when someone dies and we have their funeral, and when we pray for their eternal repose, the two words that we sing most centrally are memory eternal. The priest says, grant rest eternal and blessed repose, O Lord, to the soul of your servant who has fallen asleep and make his or her memory eternal. And all the people sing memory eternal. What does that mean? It certainly does not mean that we are saying we shall remember that person always. We shall always have him or her in our minds because we shan't be around always either. When we say memory eternal, we are placing that person into the hands of the one who does have an eternal memory, namely God. And when we remember when we say in the liturgy, remembering everything that was done for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming, we even say we're remembering the second coming. That demonstrates clearly that the, the remembrance that is spoken of here is not the going back into the past, because the second coming hasn't happened yet. And we're remembering it too. Why? How? We are doing it because we enter into as much as we can as creatures the perspective of God, the mind of God. And we are made able to see things from a divine and eternal perspective that by ourselves we would never be capable of doing. So that is what the cycles of prayer are for, the ones that we mentioned last week, the daily, the weekly, the yearly, the cycle of feasts. The flow, the ebb and flow of the services throughout the day, evening, morning, and throughout the day. The sanctification of time to not experience, again, to, I, br I, bought, I, I brought the book this evening, Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Sabbath, in which he says, some of you may have heard me read this before, but maybe many of you have not, just a couple sentences, which he talks about time, Rabbi Heschel. And he says, technical civilization is man's conquest of space. Not, not, not just outer space, but space, just plain space. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. In technical civilization, we spend time to gain space. Now, if that sounds kind of out there, what it means is very simple. It means that the way I live primarily, hopefully I've grown out of it a little bit, hopefully you have too, but the tendency is to say at the beginning of, the, of each day, I have this amount of time and I must spend this time in such and such a way that I might make happen my plans for the day. I have the fuel of the day's time to burn up so that it can produce my accomplishing what I am convinced I need to accomplish. Now, what I need to accomplish is hopefully good, but of course we know that there's a mix of things in us. And for some even, the energy of time is spent in trying to force to happen things that are not good. Anyway, 
Time is seen, therefore, as having only a practical purpose. The only way I experience time is a certain amount of chronological time that I have to make sure that, the, by the way I use it, I am controlling and forcing, those are not so positive words, or simply causing what I think needs to be to happen, right? So we spend time to gain space. To enhance our power in the world of space is our main objective. Yet to have more, says Rabbi Heschel, does not mean to be more. To have more does not mean to be more. The power we attain in the world of space terminates abruptly at the borderline of time. But time is the heart of existence. There is a realm of time. Now, listen to this, because this is the reason why I'm reading this to you. There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space, becomes our sole concern. Becomes our sole concern. Then life goes wrong. Now, just another sentence or two. The higher, the higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments, to face sacred moments. In a religious experience, for example, it is not a thing that imposes itself on man, but a spiritual presence. Spiritual life begins to decay when we fail to sense the grandeur of what is eternal in time. The grandeur of what is eternal in time. Not escaping from time. We don't escape from time any more than we escape from our bodies. Our bodies are not a prison for the soul. That's Plato. It's not Jesus Christ. The body is, in fact, the form of the soul. We can't be whole people without it. If a body without a soul is a corpse, a soul without a body is a ghost, and neither one is a complete person. So the same goes for all material creation. The same goes for time. Time is not something to escape. Time is something meant to be a door, a door into eternity. John says in his vision, in the apocalypse, that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the spirit on the Lord's day. In the spirit, that of course speaks of eternity, but on the Lord's day, that speaks in time. And he saw a door opened in heaven, and a voice said to him, come up here. So St. John enters into the visions of the apocalypse at a specific time, and that time has become the door into eternity. That is what the Lord's day is intended to be for us. Now, we may not, and, and no doubt we will not have the unidentical experience to St. John of hearing a voice tell us to come up through the open door in heaven. But nevertheless, we will have the experience of being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
But in order for that to be, in order for that to happen, it has to be because we observe the Lord's Day as the means in time by which we partake of eternity. And it will not happen, my dear beloved ones. It will not happen if we reduce it to minimums. It will not happen if we say, oh, it's Sunday. Yes, I must fulfill my obligation. It will not happen if on Sunday we say, oh, yes, it's Sunday. I have to go to have my religious needs met. So just like I go to the food store, the grocery store, when I need to have my food needs met, and I go to the clothing store when I need to have my clothing needs met, we have reduced the church as to that which fulfills our individualized religious needs. So we go to the sacrament store to have our sacramental needs met, and hopefully as conveniently as possible. So it does not interrupt our obsession with burning up the fuel of our time to control our space, unless we give that all, and that is the invitation that's that's given to modern Christians. Now, unless we find the way to give that all up, we will never experience being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And our Lord will say to us lovingly, lovingly, but, but with great insight, the Lord will say to us lovingly, as he said, to the good lady Martha, 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 you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing only is needed. And Mary, who from the point of view of what can be observed, Mary, who's sitting around and doing nothing, when she could be helpful in helping Martha to control her space. <laughs> Martha's good lady, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. But Martha is limited by her preoccupation with her things of space. Mary has chosen, says Jesus, the better part, and it's not going to be taken away from her because Mary has learned the mystery the mystery, the sacrament of what it is to be. And what it, what it is to be is not always to be doing, but to be being. So if we are to learn, learn by experience what it is to be in the spirit on the Lord's day, we must accept the invitation to worship and to be with the church. Now, back to Father Guardini and his sacred signs. When he says, the liturgy is not a matter of ideas, but of actual things. It is a continuous movement, a continuous movement. I have, as I grow older, I, what, I, what I hope and what I have some confidence by God's mercy is the beginning of the realization of what that is. I'll give you a, a, a specific example. For I, I will be, I will have been a priest 38 years this coming June 4th. So 38 years. Uh, I'm just speaking of one one experience of that of those 38 years. When I serve the Holy Week services, when I am the means by which the Lord makes His passion and death and resurrection present in the church. Increasingly, I do have that realization that I am not doing something over and over and over and over again as the years go by. Rather, I am returning to that same continuous presence 
I have come back to what is, you see. And the more we are able to have a capacity for that, the more that we realize that uh, there's, there's only, a, I, I know I say this like a broken record, but the more that I realize that there is only one priest, there is only one altar, there is only one self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is only one Eucharist, there is only one divine liturgy or mass, there is only one communion, not all this many, 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 many that we think because we can be imprisoned sometimes in the limitations of time, that I am continually returning to. I'm continually returning to that one center of life. That is what the liturgical cycles of prayer are meant to make present for me. And so, again, Father Guardini says, we must discern in the living liturgy what underlies the visible sign to discover the soul from the body, to discover the soul from the body, not in, in spite of the body or outside the body, but to discover the soul from the body, the hidden and spiritual from the external and material. That's what the sacramental experience of life is, the hidden and spiritual from the external and material. The liturgy has taken its outward shape from a divine and hidden series of happenings, a divine and hidden series of happenings. Now, another perspective on this is to consider the procession every year of the great feasts of the church. And again, so often when they are not altogether ignored, but when people give a kind of superficial acknowledgement of them, oh, it's a great feast day, I guess I should go to church. Well, that's a good thing to do, surely it is. But the experience of the feast day is to experience the interruption in that routine of burning up time to force our control over our little piece of space, that thing I call my life. The experience of the feasts is to make us realize that they are present realities. They are not past events that are gone. And so the good Father Jean Carbon, in his book that I know many of you are, have familiarity with, Wellspring of Worship, says this, when Jesus rises from the tomb, in the words of St. Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, he has become a life-giving spirit. That doesn't mean he doesn't have his body anymore. Henceforth, in his humanity, nature, will, and energy, Jesus is alive. He is united to the Father and radiates the glory of God from his own body. The river of life can now flow forth from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb. And the liturgy has been born because the liturgy is the partaking of that fountain. Again, those of you who know the Byzantine tradition of the liturgy know that the communion hymn for Pascha, and now used even outside of Pascha in many churches through the year, receive the body of Christ, taste the fountain, taste the fountain of immortality, yes? Taste the fountain of immortality. Drink from the water that doesn't dry up. Partake of the life that death cannot touch. 
let us not imagine this event as being a thing of the past. True enough, it occurred at one point in our history. It was an event and not, a, not simply a symbol, but it also occurred once and for all. The events in which we are involved happen once, but never once and for all. They pass and passing belong to the past. The resurrection of Jesus is not in the past. For if, for if it were, Jesus would not have conquered our death. Above and beyond its historical circumstances, which are indeed of the past, the death of Jesus was by its nature the death of death. But the event in which death was put to death cannot belong to the past, for then death would not have been conquered. To the extent that it passes, time is prisoner of death. Once time is delivered from death, it no longer passes. So the experiences of the cycles of prayer in the liturgy are the experience of the experience of time tra transformed, time delivered from death that no longer, therefore, passes. Now, Father Carbone also writes of the ascension of the Lord. In a week from tomorrow evening, we begin Ascension Day, Ascension Thursday, following Luke's careful chronology in the gospel that the Lord ascended on the 40th day. I have of course, I, I am not, I am not God, and the 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 decisions of what's to become of people are up to God. But I am convinced there's a special place, at least in purgatory, for those who cooked up the desire, the idea of moving the Ascension Day from its day, given to us in the Holy Scriptures themselves, celebrated by the Church and not to be moved to another day out of convenience. The Lord's Day, Sunday, is the day of the resurrection. The Lord's Day always has its content. It, it is also, by the way, the day of the descent of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have Pentecost Sunday. It's also the day that the Lord entered Jerusalem for his passion. That's why we have Palm Sunday. But we don't have Ascension Sunday, because the Ascension did not happen on Sunday. It's the completion of a particular interval of time. In this season of the church, this Paschal season, every year we partake of those 40 days, and then the 10 more days from Ascension to Pentecost, in which scripture says that the disciples were initiated, initiated into the mysteries of the kingdom of God and were in the presence of the risen Lord who came to them and assured them that he was alive forever by what the Acts of the Apostles described as incontestable proofs. And we accept that claim of those incontestable proofs. The church continues through time now and has done so for just about 2,000 years because of the events of those 40 days. They are not to be taken lightly. They are not to be played around with by the masters of utilitarianism and convenience. So back to again, Father Corbon. And that's, see, you see, but that is what is what happens when we have become so used to these minimalisms that we don't even realize their absurdity anymore most of the time. To say that the, for the priest to announce in church, this this coming Thursday is Ascension Day. It is one of the greatest feasts of the church. And therefore, it is your obligation to celebrate. Well, 
If it must be expressed in that language of obligation, all right. I'm not against obligations and duties. However, to have in one's ideas, again, that that's how I celebrate the feast, by, by fulfilling an obligation. Where is the experience of time being the doorway into eternity in that? Where is the joy of choosing the better part? If all my celebration of the feast day is going to be that I interrupt my daily consumption of the fuel of time for a little while, and then simply go back to it, the feast day must be the entry into the living presence of the glorified Christ. That's what the liturgy is meant to convey. It can only be conveyed if the sanctification of that time through through the prayers of the church in the evening, in the morning, and at noon are there forming the setting, providing the foundation for the great act of the church's entry into the mystery of all mysteries, which is the risen Lord, the risen and glorified Lord present among us in the Eucharist. Well, this is what this is what Father Corbon has to say about the mystery of the ascension. It is highly regrettable that the majority of the faithful pays total heed to the ascension of the Lord. Their lack of appreciation of it is closely as connected with their lack of appreciation for the mystery of the liturgy. A superficial reading of the end of the, of the Gospels in the first chapter of Acts can give the impression that Christ simply departed. In the mind of readers not submissive to the Spirit, a page has been turned. They now begin to think of Jesus in the past and to speak of what he said in the past tense and what he did in the past tense because he's gone away. Yet the Lord Jesus says to us that he has not gone away, that he is with us until the end of the age. In fact, he promised his disciples that they would have a greater experience of his presence after he departed. A great mystery that. So let us not speak of Jesus in the past. Those who do that, says Father Carbon, have carefully sealed up the tomb again and filled up the fountain of living water with sand. They continue to look among the dead for someone who is alive, and they return to their narrow lives in which some things have to do with morality and others with practice like those of the old covenant, but in fact, the ascension of the Lord is the decisive turning point. It does indeed mark the end of something that is not simply to be cast aside, the end of relationship to Jesus that is still wholly external. That's why the Lord says to Mary Magdalene those rather mysterious words on the morning of the resurrection, "Don't, don't touch me, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go to my brethren, my brothers, and say, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene becomes the apostle to the apostles and does not try to hang on to something that has been transformed. What has been transformed? The ascension marks the beginning of an entirely new relationship of faith and of a new time, the liturgy of the last times. We have been since the day of the ascension in the liturgy of the last times. And that is what puts the final stamp on the Lord, the Lord's final stamp on time as something that has a beginning and an end. He is the beginning and end of it. He says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And however the time may appear to be, 
progressing, sometimes not progressing in a way that is that is uh, seems to be very hopeful to us. However, it appears I am the Lord of it. All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth and on earth. Do we believe it? Or do we say, oh, yes, he's powerful in heaven, but he can't be powerful on earth or or it wouldn't be the mess that it is. All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth, for I am with you to the end of the age. And it is through the prayer of the church, the feasts of the church, the divine office of the church, that rhythm of time being the door into eternity that keeps us in continual communion with that fountain of immortality, which gives us the true life that sustains our life now and will continue to provide life for all eternity. So I'll stop there, and I hope that these two talks have been of help to you in insofar as being an invitation to a continually richer immersion into the prayer of the church and for that prayer to become truly a door into eternity. And thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you so much for these words and and these insights into our prayer. Uh, First question here, how would you suggest that we spend our Sundays? Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for asking that because I think I can reply to it uh, in a way that's that's uh, very direct. So first of all, as the scripture uh, tells us, and as the tradition of the church has has remained faithful to, and this is both, this is through all the apostolic traditions, east and the west. First of all, Sunday begins on on the on Saturday Eve. Now, that does not mean that Saturday evening was ever intended. And here, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to express my biases. Sunday was never intended to be the time in which one, by convenience, gets one Sunday obligation to worship over, okay? That's that's an interesting study in itself. But Sunday or Saturday evening is the time of anticipation and welcoming the coming of the Lord's Day. So it should be especially marked by participation in the evening prayer of the church. Many, many Eastern churches still do provide Saturday Vespers. It's not, if that's not possible, or, or in, the, in the tradition of the Latin rite, Sunday sh- should begin with the praying of Vespers at home on the eve of the Lord's Day. Saturday evening should be kept as a time of, of quiet preparation and enjoying the company of others who are sharing that preparation. I don't mean it's a, t- a time to, as one of my old friends who grew up in a Scottish, an old-fashioned Scottish Presbyterian home, and said that on that on the eve of Sunday, his his granny would draw the drapes so as to make the house look gloomy, <laughs> because anything devout had to be gloomy. <laughs> no, but it is a time of. Peacefully, if one if one lives with others, uh, peacefully living, uh, enjoying time together with others, having having an unhurried meal together, it's also the time that traditionally, if one if if it is the if it is the time for one to to receive the sacrament of repentance, one should go to the church for that on Saturday evening. One should not engage 
in secular entertainments or diversions on the eve of the Lord's Day. Not because they're bad, not because they're bad, but because they distract from this vigilant preparation. It's, you know, there's all kinds of things that are that are good in life that we don't do on the steps of the altar, right? Because on the steps of the altar, we are set aside for God. We are in tune with the life to come. So Saturday night, quiet preparation for the Lord's Day. Also, with all of the with all of the rush that we that we suffer from from our consuming of our time, it's also a good time to take advantage of getting a decent night's sleep. Then Sunday morning, and I and here I am, I am assuming that it's everyone's desire to be at the liturgy on Sunday morning and not at some unusual time, but on Sunday morning, as Christians have done since the apostolic age. So Sunday morning, one should arise early. One should one should pray the prayer of the church, either if if again in, in a parish that provides the morning office, or if not, then then with others or 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 even uh, by oneself. But always remember when you pray the offices of the church by yourself, you're never alone. You're with the whole church, keeping Now, this underlined many times, keeping the traditional Eucharistic fast, unless, of course, it's not possible to do that because because of infirmity. But in normal circumstances, keeping the full Eucharistic fast, which means the Holy Eucharist is the first food of the day. We owe that much out of respect to the Lord. Then, of course, going to the celebration of the liturgy. After that, again, depending on where one goes, sometimes there's a gathering of people after the liturgy for time together and food together. That's that's common in our Eastern churches because they're usually smaller, may not be so easy to do in, in some of the, the larger Roman parishes. But certainly there should be uh, a meal, if, especially if one has kept, a, kept the Eucharist, Eucharistic fast, a meal, Sunday breakfast, spending, spending Sunday afternoon in in good, leisurely, enjoyable activities. The things that we do that are blessed by God to enjoy the life he has given us. And then again, to finish off the day with prayer and, and the Sunday dinner. Uh, Lester, I see you have your hand raised. So, Father, I, and I've had this thought about this whole Sunday of obligation. I grew up Roman Catholic, and that was something really embedded in me. It took a while for me to break that or at least grow out of that. So I'll keep it short. Like whose responsibility is that for, especially in a family, if it's the, the pastor's responsibility or the parent's responsibility to help, especially children kind of grow out of that because that notion of Sunday obligation will always be there. Oh, but, yes. And, and there's some, nothing wrong with it. Right. It's not wrong in itself, but the attitude, I've noticed that it's more of an attitude thing than so what's on paper. Like, who would you think would be the primary person to help a family grow out of that? Okay, well, of course, on the level of the parish family, of course, it's the it's the pastor that that needs to convey by teaching and by example. 
of the centrality of the Lord's Day worship. And that's why that, that responsibility is so important, because the pastor must be concerned that the liturgical life is being cultivated in, in the church, that, that the liturgies are beautifully and carefully celebrated, that they are celebrated in a way that is in accord with the tradition in which the church is, that they are not casual, that they are not sloppy, that the atmosphere is reverent, that they are not rushed, all those things. Now, on, on the level of the family, of course, it is uh, the, the, first, the first obligation is the father, but, but of course, the mother with him. But over and over again, it has been shown, I mean, as much as these statistics, they're not, they're not absolute standards, but they do have a certain value, that by far, the greatest number of children persevere in the practice of the faith when the father the father is the example of that. Now, the way, of course, of course, children grow. And what is expected of, of small children is rather different. Uh, small children can't always understand the reasons why uh, they must do this or that, but but hopefully by by the good by the the good uh, uh, encouragement and discipline of their parents, they learn this. As they grow, they must gradually own it for themselves. Now, I would I would generally take the position that that uh, a child that hasn't reached you know a mature age is is under the authority of his or her parents. The parents set what is expected in the household. And and people are and the and the family is expected to be united in this. As the children age, they have to take uh, upon themselves this responsibility. And so there does come a time that that should a child express resistance. Hopefully, the good example of the parent can be the primary help. But I, I would be convinced that that once you know, once a child is in their mid-teens, for example, you can't force them to go to church anymore. You can't force them. Uh, you can you can use every kind of positive influence that there is, but you can't accompany what is, after all, in the words of of Pope Saint Benedict or, or Pope Emeritus Benedict, hope he is Saint Benedict one day, that that the Lord came to invite, not to coerce. And so there comes a point where the invitation is made, but once a child is is coming of age, the the child must make the decision to own it by him or herself. Father, there's a question from Catherine that came in saying, I think I am distracted during Holy Mass more often than I am attentive. The same for my prayers. Mm -hmm. What can I do to learn to dwell more in the liturgy? Well, it, you, you, must, you must persevere with patience because distractions are common to most everybody, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes even in the life of great saints. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, admits in her biography, she used, to, she used to, as was common in those days, measure the time of her, her prayer time with a little hourglass, probably was a half hourglass. And she, and she admitted that sometimes she would just be distracted watching the sand run out. 
and then you know feeling sorry that she prayed so badly and and determined that she would by god's grace try harder and that's what it takes to saint seraphim of sarov uh, in 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 russia said that the reason why there do not seem to be as many people filled with the grace of the spirit as there used to be said that there's only one thing lacking and that is firm resolution firm resolution distractions come from a number of sources they come sometimes from being preoccupied with cares some people are of a more nervous temperament than others and they have more uh distractions some people are more placid they maybe have less then there is also that we ought to, we must be you know uh balanced and careful then there's also the influence of the evil spirits who do try to to bother us they are pests but that that uh, doesn't mean that we can blame every distraction on them don't don't go looking for for the demons under every you know under every little bush as but but they are there they are there and, and they they hate when we pray so they try they try to weary us to distract us saint john of the cross says that they torment us in the ascent of mount carmel he says they torment us with the with the spirit of impurity the spirit of blasphemy and then the third one is an interesting one the spirit of vertigo spiritus vertiginis he calls it in latin which means of not being uh, like we're just you know uh, as a person with vertigo does we can't get our foothold we can't fix our mind on anything the moment we try it goes to something else and all all of those things he says and and he says for some people they last longer than others and the only way through it is to trust in god's grace and to continue if you are distracted in the liturgy then gently not in a nervous or frenzied way gently bring your mind and and your heart back to what is being said and done and your your particip- participation in it as many times as is necessary and if you are if you continue in this it will bear fruit father we'll end with this we had a couple of questions come in about praying the liturgy of the hours Caroline asks, what is the best way for one to get started in learning how to pray the Liturgy of the Hours? And then a a question pertaining to, does it matter which arrangement of the hours I use? Uh, Johan says uh, he's a Roman Catholic, but prays the bravery of St. Pius X and wants to know if that's still considered taking part in the church's prayer. Of course. The breviary of Saint Pius X would be from the early part of the 20th century. It's a it's a it's a less reduced, uh, less abbreviated form uh, of the Divine Office. Now, the Divine Office in both the East and the West, you know, it's had 2,000 years to develop, and it became a very full expression since a lot of its development, not its origin, but a lot of its development took place in monasteries. So when monasteries are at their best, you know, the the people in them, the monks and the nuns, they want to spend a lot of time in church, which is good. So the office developed a very full form. In other words, to do the the the, uh, the more traditional form of the Roman office and to to do the Byzantine office as it is presently formulated in the service books takes takes a long time, many hours every day, many hours. Now, 
And so it may be that that many people say, well, I can't do all that. It's just it's not, not possible. And that may very well be true. So one one should do one should do portions that one can do. Sometimes people say, well, the office is very complicated. And there is uh, there is a truth in that. There is a measure of complication. You have to know the, the flowing of these cycles, you know, the daily cycle, the weekly cycle, the various in the Byzantine tradition, the various books that you get the proper text from, because all of the office isn't found in even in one book. You have to have a lot of books. You have to know how to how to, you know, if you ever been to a, if if you go to an Eastern church or you uh, or you've ever or you're not Eastern Catholic or, or Orthodox, but you visit one, you know, you see the see the chanters and they have this stand that that can be twirled around so that there can be a lot of books on it. And and the art, the art of this is knowing when to go to to what is needed at the time that it's needed. Well, not everybody has the has the ability to do this. However, one can again with time. By the way, all those appearances, like like it is with many many things, once you become more accustomed to them, you see that they do have a a. A, an internal consistency and logic of their own, you become used to them. Then it becomes less distracting, all of these, all, all, all of this uh, interweaving of things that change and things that don't. But so, so the divine office has an element of that. And I would say that again, uh, if you now, now there's so many resources that you even can get, you know, from the media that will do some of that for you. It will have it all put together for you, if you like. Uh, and you can take advantage of those, if you like, and, and learn gradually. The best way, I understand that it's not available to many people. The best way is to pray the office with those who, who uh, have learned how to do it, and then you learn how to do it. But if that's not possible, then take advantage of the other means that, that are available to learn as best you can and be patient with yourself. You're, in, you're partaking in the prayer of the church, and it will, it, again, it will bear the fruit of grace of immersing you into this immortal fountain of the life of God that he gives to us through the prayer of the church. And there's always, even, you know, uh, now I'm... I'm one of those who's a bit of a specialist in the in the construction of the office, so I know how it works. I don't have to think much about it. But still, uh, sometimes there are days when there's a lot of complicated things, and you're, you know, in the chapel in the college, which we we have the means to do the offices every day, at least some of them, not the not the absolute whole thing. Although we do do the absolute whole thing during Holy Week, and even then there can be mistakes made, and you know you're picking up one thing and drop something else on the floor and all all that happens and you just continue on. (laughs) Father Anderson, this has been just a fabulous evening. Uh, Would you mind closing us with a prayer and your blessing? Very very glad to do it. And once again, since this is the, we begin now the last day of the middle week of the, of the Paschal season, I'll, I'll once again, chant that, that prayer. In the middle of the feast, O Savior, fill my thirsty soul with the waters of piety. For you cried out to all, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. O Christ God, fountain of our life, glory to you. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind, always now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. God bless you all.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.